Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Neighborhood Church. This message was given by Danny Strange. In this series, we've been examining the times that Jesus commands people to follow him. And here in this second occasion, we see that Jesus does do that with a few disciples, but before he commands some to follow him, there are a few disciples who come and they choose to follow him on their own. And we will look at these about halfway through the book of John, or first chapter of John here, in verse 35. Found it? Let me pray for us and we'll dive into God's word this morning. Father, this morning we thank you for the opportunity to come into your word and find life there. James tells us that your word is the perfect law that gives freedom. We pray that we would find freedom in living for you as we encounter your word and see the way that Jesus, his burdens are easy, his yoke is light. Pray that we would learn to follow him and that we would trust him along the way. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jessica and I had been dating for a few years, I started to realize that she was the woman that I needed to marry. I say needed because I needed to marry her before she realized that I was a dork and found someone else. And and so I started getting excited about the prospect of proposing. This is a moment that you look forward to your whole life. And so I started saving my money. I bought a ring. I made some plans. I made some reservations. I thought through how the day would look. And there was one conversation that stood between me and the future I desired. And that was a conversation with Jessica's father. It was a terrifying conversation. Jessica's dad is not a scary guy. He's a nice guy. He, he liked me, I, I think. Uh, he was waiting for this. He knew this was coming. And I was so excited uh, to marry her. And yet the thought of sitting before him and asking for his daughter's hand in marriage just sent these like chills down my spine. And like my palms were sweating and I was shaking. And I, I was terrified. Have you ever had a conversation that you were not looking forward to? It's not fun. I, I'm still picturing it in my mind. I'm getting scared of thinking about talking about it. We, we went down to JD's restaurant. Jessica was out of town. I said, hey, after church, let's go, to, let's go to breakfast. And he gave me this look like, I know what you're doing here. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, please let this be over. You know? Those conversations that you're scared to have are ones that you feel like, okay, I just want to go to bed and wake up and have that day gone, you know, to wake up on the other side of this thing. Isn't there a way to walk into this future without going through this terrifying conversation? We have conversations like that in a lot of different contexts. Sometimes they're good, asking someone to marry their daughter. Sometimes they're hard. You've got to break up with someone. You need to let someone go at work. Sometimes there are conversations that we just do not want to have, and the thought of them just brings discouragement and unease and fear. I feel that that's probably how these two disciples felt when they approached Jesus and asked him if they might follow him. We see here in John chapter 1 verse 35 that John the Baptist was there with these two disciples. 
And when John the Baptist saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And this was John's kind of command to, now go and follow him. And he almost like ushers these little birds out of the nest, and, and they start following along after Jesus like, like little chickens or duckies or something. And I love the fact that they're kind of socially awkward. They don't just go to Jesus and say, hey, excuse me. They, they just start following him quietly, which I really resonate with that because I'm socially awkward. And if I go to a party and there's a bunch of people hanging out in different little social groups, I'm not the guy who walks in and says, hey, the party can start now. That's not me. I sneak in the side door and kind of sidle up to like a little group of people hanging out and just hang out there until someone acknowledges me. <laughs> that's me. And that's what the disciples do. They, they just start following and toddling after Jesus. And at some point, maybe right away, maybe like a month later, probably not, Jesus turns around and he notices that these people are following him. It says in verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and he asked, what do you want? That's how I read it. That's probably not how he said it. The Greek here is Jesus asking, what is your desire? What are you looking for? What are you seeking? How can I help you? Jesus encounters these two nervous-sounding disciples with grace and asks them, okay, tell me what your desire is. And then the moment comes that they have to kind of push it all in. It's their elevator pitch. They've been thinking about what they're going to say. They've got to ask him the right question. They've got to tell him the right answer. What do we desire, Jesus? What do we desire? And they blurt out, where are you staying? If I was Jesus, I would totally make fun of them for that. That's your, that's your answer? Where am I staying? You want to come have a slumber party? What, what, are, you, what are you guys doing? That, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus understands that underneath this nervous-sounding exterior where these disciples are fumbling around with words a little bit, they're following him quietly a little bit, Jesus understands the heart of their request. And this word staying is a word that's used a lot in John's gospel. It's the word meno, to abide. These disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, where are you abiding? What they're saying between the lines here is, Jesus, we want to abide with you. And that's something that Jesus wants us to want. So Jesus, we want to stay with you. We don't have a quick question. Well, we don't want to just pull you off the side of the road and ask you a couple theological questions. We don't want to have coffee with you. We don't even want to have a meal with you. What we want from you is going to take a long, long time. So Jesus, our question is, where are you abiding? May we abide with you? It's a big ask. Jesus is a rabbi that these, these folks have been really wanting to follow. And John the Baptist has been talking up Jesus to these guys for a long time. The day before, John the Baptist gives this speech to these disciples about how amazing Jesus is. He says, I'm not raising you up to follow me. I'm raising you up to follow him. I'm not worthy. Untie that guy's shoes. We're not on equal footings. I, I'm not him. He is before me. He's better than me. He is amazing. You need to follow him. The whole reason you're with me is for him. So all that you need to know, disciples, John the Baptist says, is follow him. And so when he pushes them towards Jesus and they stand there face to face and they lay it on the line and they say, Jesus, we want to abide with you. Where are you abiding? Jesus doesn't make them jump through hoops. He doesn't give him a list of things to do. He doesn't make fun of them. He doesn't send them away. He says, come, and you will see. Isn't it great how easy Jesus makes it to follow him? I know for a lot of us who didn't grow up in the church, one of the big hurdles in becoming a Christian is feeling like it's, it's got to be difficult to start that journey. 
God's not going to want me like I am. Jesus isn't going to want me as a follower until I clean my life up first. Jesus isn't going to want me until I can prove to him that I'm worthy to follow him. And yet once we understood the gospel, we realized that following him is easy. Yeah, we're sinners and he knows it. Yeah, we're going to mess up continually. And yet he desires that we follow him anyway. Following him is, is easy. So easy, in fact, that these disciples did what would only be natural for them to do. They realized that it was so, so simple to start following this amazing person, Jesus, that they went and found their brother. It says they went and saw where he was staying. They stayed that day with him. And then in verse 40, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And in verse 31, 41, it says this, The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, which is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Once they realized how easy it was to follow Jesus, they started telling everyone. The main point of this text is that evangelism is easy. How many of you agree with that? Me neither. Evangelism is easy. I see them do it, and yet when I start thinking about evangelism, I start getting sweaty. I see how easy it is for these guys to go and get buddies and bring them along for the journey. That's not me. For me, evangelism is anything but easy. It's terrifying. It's scary. I, I tremble. I, I fail. I refuse. I, I don't. Full disclosure, in this context, evangelism was pretty easy. These guys were looking for Jesus already. John the Baptist had set them up for that. Even Simon Peter, when Andrew goes to him, he says, we have found the Messiah, which assumes that Simon Peter was looking for the Messiah. So in these guys' case, evangelism was pretty easy. All they had to do was find some people who were looking for Jesus and bring them along for the ride. So for us, evangelism isn't always this easy, but Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. The first point, if you're taking notes, is that sometimes evangelism is easy. Did you know that there are men and women in this world who are ready to receive the gospel and that are looking for Jesus, just like these guys were? And in those cases, in those cases, evangelism is easy. I think of on the next page in John chapter 4 when Jesus is meeting with this Samaritan woman. She was up at the well outside of town because she was an outcast, and she had some sin in her life, and everyone knew about it. They knew what kind of woman she was, and yet Jesus approaches this woman and shares his identity with her, that he is the Messiah. And this woman's heart is transformed, and she sees Jesus and says, I, I need to go tell some people about you, and so she goes back down into town. She finds everyone in the town, all the people who had alienated her, all the people who had made fun of her, all the people who had shunned her. She finds those people. And when she gets there, she says, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It doesn't seem like a very bold claim. Everyone knew what this woman had done. And yet when she said that, People started coming in droves to meet Jesus. 
And Jesus is still outside of the town. His disciples had come to him, and he's talking a little bit, this little theological lesson. And on the way, all of a sudden, all these Samaritans start coming up the hill towards Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, isn't there a saying, isn't there a saying, there's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Look at all these people who are coming up at just a moment's notice to find me. They're looking for me. They're ripe. My dad has an orange tree in his backyard. And yesterday I decided I, I would make some orange juice. And I look out on the tree and there's all these big orange oranges. They look ripe to me. So I go down to the tree and I'm starting to like pluck oranges off. But I get to the first orange and like, like the whole branch just... I'm like pulling on this orange, pulling on this orange, and nothing's happening. And finally, like the whole branch like falls off in my hands. I'm thinking, oh, maybe that one's not ready. <laughs> and yet sometimes if you've ever picked apples or you pick blackberries, something like that, you go along, and, and as you start going through the apple tree or through the blackberry bush, you pull on them. Some of them aren't ready, but some of them are. Sometimes you go to an apple tree and you just touch a branch and all these apples fall off. And you realize, wow, these are, these are ripe for the harvest. Jesus says, you look out of the world, there are people like that. Yeah, they all look the same on the outside. Yeah, everyone looks equally ripe or unripe on the outside. But if you show up and you start tugging the fruit, some of it is going to prove that it is ripe for the harvest. That was the case of the Samaritans. That was the case of Simon Peter. That was the case of Andrew. They were ready. Sometimes evangelism is this easy. Really the way that we need to find out who's ready for the gospel is we need to tug the fruit to see if it's ripe for the harvest. Tug the fruit. And some of it will not be ready. And some of it will. There are people in your neighborhood who are not ready for the gospel. And there are people who are. I bet if you go to all your neighbors and you just look for a way to kind of start the conversation, you don't have to think of some big script or anything. You just go up and say, Hey, I've been praying for you. Make sure you have been praying for you. Don't lie to them. Pray for them. Then go and say, hey, I've been praying for you. Some neighbors, most neighbors would probably say, thank you. That's, that's really nice. I appreciate that. But every once in a while, you make a little comment like that to somebody, and their eyes, like, well up with tears. Are, are you serious? You're praying for me? Man, I, my life has been hard, and wow. Wow, what made you think to pray for me? And, and all of a sudden, they're, they're ready to have a conversation about the gospel. They just tug the fruit, and it's ripe. A few years ago, I, I took a bunch of high school students on a missions trip to Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, that's why I'm not a youth pastor anymore. And so we show up. We didn't know what we were going to do. That was the whole context of this trip. We're partnering with different organizations. And when we got there, they gave us things to do. And so the kids were in the dark. I was in the dark in terms of the agenda. And so I get there to this base where this, this ministry is going to take us out onto the Las Vegas Strip and these other places to do ministry. And I say, okay, what's the plan? Are we going to go to a homeless shelter? Is there some ministry we're going to partner with? You want us to set up chairs? And they're like, no, 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 we're doing street evangelism. Ugh. I don't like street evangelism. Street evangelism terrifies me. Going up to a stranger and talking to them about Jesus while they're trying to enjoy Las Vegas. And, and honestly, street evangelism is not just something that scares me. It's always been something that I've almost been morally opposed to. I, I, I feel for myself, when someone comes and accosts me on the street, I don't want to talk to them. So I think, why would I want to do that to someone else? 
Why would I want to go out there and interrupt someone's family vacation and say, hey, let's have a long conversation about the Bible, right? How effective is that going to be? But I was in charge of the trip. So, so I'm like, oh, yeah, all right, let's do it. I'm so, super excited. Cool. Uh, so the kids are looking around like, oh, we have to do this? I'm like, yeah, we got to be excited about this. we got to be excited about this. And, and so they take us down to Old Town, Las Vegas, and they give us these surveys. I think, a survey? How cheesy is that? I'm here to do a survey on the religious beliefs of people in Las Vegas. It's like, people are going to see right through that. This is not going to work. You're setting up all these students for a lifetime of hating evangelism. And so I decided that since I was the leader, I probably shouldn't partake in the exercise. Um, I should supervise. I should supervise. <laughs> and so I took my little survey and I put it in my pocket. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to pray for these kids and pray that this doesn't ruin their Christianity. And so, so I start going around and I see a group of our kids, uh, some girls talking to this woman. And I think, oh, man. I feel bad for that woman, and I feel bad for our kids. And <laughs> so the lady walks away, and I'm like, okay, I need to come and reassure these high school girls. And they turn around, and they're, like, smiling. I'm like, what just happened? Like, well, we met this lady, and we asked her if we wanted to take the, she wanted to take the survey, and she said yes. I'm like, oh, okay. So, so I started asking her questions about Jesus, and she started crying. And she said, how did, you, how did you know what I was going through? And they said, I don't know, we're just here with the survey. <laughs> This woman says, my life has been so hard, and, and I've never prayed before, but, but just a few minutes ago, I prayed that God would send someone to me to help me understand all of this. And then you showed up to talk to me about Jesus. You were from God. I'm like, oh, man, what a great coincidence. <laughs> see, I see some high school guys talking to this man, and I think, oh, man. I go over there and say, how is it? How was it? And they're like, it was amazing. I'm like, what's that guy's story? Like, you wouldn't believe this. He got home from work today, and his wife was gone. His house was cleaned out. And this guy said he didn't know where to turn, so he came down here to Old Town Las Vegas and started wandering around looking for how to pick the pieces back up again, and he ran into us first. We told him about Jesus, and he accepted the gospel. And it was so convicting to me to realize that the fruit is ready. And sometimes when we just start tugging at it, and God starts sending people to us who just need the tug. <laughs> and the next day, I thought I was all excited about street evangelism now, and so we're like, what are we going to do the next day? They're like, we're going to Las Vegas Strip. I'm like, yes, so good to bring the gospel to the Las Vegas Strip. Street evangelism, let's get the surveys out, right? And I like uncrinkled mine. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no, 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 no street evangelism. We're not going to talk to people today. I'm like, what? I said, well, what are we going to do? They said, we're going to have a kid carry a giant wooden cross up the Las Vegas Strip. I'm like, oh, man, this is, what? Why? Why? Why would you ever do that? I say, here's what you do. You just, we just have this kid hold a cross, and he's walking, and, and people will kind of look at him like he's crazy. I'm like, yes. Uh, and I said, if people look like they have questions, just go up to them and say, hey, well, what questions do you have? And so I'm like, all right, whatever. And so we start walking up the Las Vegas Strip, and the kids are, like, looking at me like, why did you sign us up for this? I'm like, oh. <laughs> so this kid puts a cross on his back and starts carrying it. Everyone's looking at him, like, whispering, right? And so people start asking, well, what, what is this? I'm like, well, you know, we, this is our spring break. <laughs> this is what we do for fun. <laughs> we, uh, 
We believe in Jesus, and we know that Jesus had to walk through a town of people who looked at him like he was a criminal, and he was crazy when he carried the cross to Calvary. And so we wanted these kids to get a little taste of maybe what that felt like, to feel alienated, and just, we don't have any agenda. There's no, like, purpose, like, politically with this or anything. We just, we just wanted to give the kids a glimpse of feeling alienated and, and holding a weird cross on their back. And you would not believe the conversations we had. I remember this one guy was just mesmerized. And so one of our kids goes up and says, hey, do you have any questions? I said, I, I just got back from Afghanistan, and, and I did some terrible things. Will, will that Jesus forgive me? And we said, we said yeah. He said, really? Really? And he started following us, like walking up the street with us, like, like those are disciples. I remember his, his girlfriend or his wife or something was there and some friends, and they were just yelling at him. They're making fun of him, saying, don't go with those people. Don't listen to those Christians. And he was just like looking back like, I can't stop. I can't stop. I've got questions. And he's asking all these questions and just holding on to every answer. He was ready. And sometimes the reason that we don't see a lot of fruit in our evangelism is we don't just go out and, and tug a little bit. Ask those simple questions and see when sometimes people are just ready. Sometimes evangelism is this easy. Other times, evangelism is not so easy. That's probably the time that you're thinking of when I say evangelism is easy. The times that it's not. And it's interesting, right after Jesus calls these first few disciples and they go get Simon Peter, Jesus has an almost exactly parallel scenario with two other disciples. It says here in John 1 verse 43 that the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was, or sorry, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about who the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Like the same thing happens. Jesus says, you follow me. And then someone says, well, I got to go get a buddy of mine. And so he goes and finds Nathanael and says, Nathanael, we found the Messiah. Come and follow him too. But Nathaniel doesn't. Nathaniel pushes back. Nathaniel's not ready. He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And I love that, because these guys seem like they're from Bethsaida. Bethsaida was not like a happening town or anything. It would be like being from Modesto or something. And No offense. No offense. <laughs> say, say you're from Modesto. I should probably finish this because I started it. So you're from Modesto, and, and you have a buddy who says, oh, man, there's a, great, there's a great band from Stockton playing tonight. You're like, Stockton? You're from Modesto, right? It's, what, Stockton, Modesto, it's all the same. Bethsaida, Nazareth, it's all the same. So it, it almost seems like Nathaniel's just throwing up this smoke screen, like, oh, I'm not following a guy from Nazareth. Maybe he had real issues. And maybe he knew that the Messiah was supposed to come from the city of David, from Bethlehem. And so he just has a theological issue. He says, no, nothing good can come from Nazareth. The Messiah is from Bethlehem. Maybe. What would you do if someone pushed back? If you started bringing up the gospel to them, and they pushed back and said, oh, no, hold on. I don't believe that. No, you guys are crazy. You believe all this stuff about whatever. This is your political view, or this is what you believe about the age of the earth, or evolution, or blah, 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 blah. What would you do? Now, I would probably go try to find a book on that subject and say, hey, read this, or... I'd try to engage with them, or I'd say, I need to do some more research, but I'll come back to you. Philip doesn't do any of these things. When, 
when Nathaniel brings up this, this Nazareth question, Philip just says, come and see. Come and see if anything good can come from Nazareth. Come and see. Come and see evangelism has kind of gotten a bad rap, I feel like, in the last few years. It feels like evangelism is supposed to be harder than that. Like you're not allowed to just go and say, hey, come and check out my church. Or, hey, we've got this cool summer musical. Let me get you a ticket. I'd love for you to come and see it. Or, I'm going on this men's retreat, and I think you should come. Just come and see. Come check it out. It just seems like that's not hard enough, and yet that's how Philip does evangelism. And you know who else employs the come and see mentality? Jesus. Just a few verses before. When Jesus says to the disciples, what do you want? And they say, where are you abiding? Jesus says, come and you will see. For Jesus and for Philip, evangelism was not closing a sales call or something. Evangelism was simply inviting people along the journey of what it might look like to follow him. He says, come and see. The bullet point on number two is invite skeptics to come and see. And it seems disingenuous that Philip doesn't address Nathaniel's issue. But I want you to see the way that Nathaniel comes to Jesus. He, he does come and he does see. And when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, in verse 47, it says, Jesus said of Nathaniel, here truly is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Oh, Nathaniel, I've been waiting for you. Nathaniel, you're the man. Thanks for coming. And Nathaniel is still skeptical. He's still pushing back. And he says to Jesus, how do you know me? How do you know who I am? You don't know me. You know, that kind of thing. And Jesus turns to Nathaniel. He says, well, I, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel looks at Jesus and declares, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. That's the easiest conversion in the history of the world. The skeptic shows up to Jesus, and Jesus says one phrase to him, and boom, he's in. I mean, even Jesus makes fun of him. He says, you believe because I told you I saw you under a tree? I tell you the truth, you'll see greater things than this. And he turns to the disciples, he says, you are going to see heaven opened, and the Son of Man, or angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will see some amazing things. How could you be convinced just because I said, I said I saw you under a fig tree? Theologians have always asked, well, what was happening under that fig tree? I don't think anything was happening under the fig tree. I think Nathaniel was ripe. He was ready. And all the deflection, all the smokescreen, all the sarcasm, it, it was just that. It was just a smokescreen. And the moment that Jesus started to engage with him, boom, he was done for. That's the cool thing about the come and see evangelism. Is we're not saying, hey, come and see our church. There's such cool people here. No offense. I mean, maybe we're cool. Maybe we're not. But, oh, come and check out the men's retreat. It's awesome. Sure, it's awesome. But what we're really saying is come along for the journey. And when you encounter God, when you hear from God's word, when you hear the gospel, when you start to see who Jesus claims to be, there's a strong chance that he will grab a hold of your heart and transform you. We're not saying come and see us. We're saying, come and see, and God might transform you when you get here. I love the way that Jesus addresses this guy's issue. He doesn't. He just starts revealing a little bit of himself to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's in. 
Jesus makes evangelism easy. There's no sales call. There's no knocking on someone's door with a bunch of pamphlets and trying to convince them. There's no argument. There's no apologetics. There's come and see. Come and see. Come and see. Who exists in your life that you can invite to come and see? We're in this Follow Jesus small group series. Maybe there's someone that you can invite to come and see what your small group is like. We're here on Sunday mornings. Invite someone to come and see what this series is about. Maybe you should have someone come and see what, what, what you're doing when you're serving up here. Say, hey, come and serve in the parking lot with me. Whatever it is, just come and see. And sometimes people will push back. So well, what does your church believe politically? Come and see. Well, what does your church do for the community? Just come and see. Well, what does your church think about? Come and see. Well, aren't Christians? Come and see. And a lot of times when we invite people to come and see, God transforms them when they get here, not because of here, but because they hear his word. They hear his gospel. They get a glimpse of who Jesus is, and all the smokescreen and all the sarcasm just fades away, and they realize that Christ is real, and he desires that they follow him. Evangelism, it's easy. My challenge for all of us is that we would look for opportunities to tug the fruit this week. Not just people that you know already you need to invite here or whatever it is, but everywhere you go. In every conversation that you find yourself in the midst of this week, ask God to give you an opportunity to just tug a little bit. Run into someone at the coffee shop. They're standing in front of you in line, and you ask, hey, how was your weekend? You say, oh, it was, it was pretty good. I went, to, I don't know, I went water skiing. You're like, oh, that's cool. What did you do? I went to church. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, do you go to church? Uh, boom, and there you go. Sometimes they'll be like, oh, man, I need to go to your church and receive Jesus Christ. Sometimes they won't. Do you tug the fruit? Start praying for your neighbors. Tell them that you're praying for them. See what happens. Start tugging a little bit. And not in a weird, manipulative way. Just ask questions that might indicate how ready they are for the gospel. And sometimes you'll have an opportunity to lead them to Christ right there. And you won't know how it happens. It's just crazy. And sometimes you'll have an opportunity to say, hey, why don't you come and see sometime? Sometimes you'll just say, whatever, and just pray for them quietly and hope that there's another opportunity down the road. We're just tugging the fruit to see if it's ready. We're asking the people, come and see. We start to do this, we'll see that even though we generally think that we're terrible evangelists, we'll start to feel like maybe we actually can do this. Maybe God's actually going to use me as an evangelist as we start seeing people coming to Christ as we just start asking them so basic of questions. For me, the, the only reason I'm here today is that someone asked me to come and see I remember I was in high school, and I, I'd never really gone to church before. I didn't think about religion, anything like that. And I had these friends in my sophomore Spanish class who said, hey, why don't you come and check out our youth group? And I was trying to be nice, so I said, sure, I'll, I'll go. And, and I went, and it was weird. Like, there are Christians there, and they're, like, singing songs to God. Someone's teaching out of an old, old book. And I just thought, pass. <laughs> I'm done. 
And, and so then every week they'd say, hey, come and see, come and see, come and see. I'm like, no, 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 for a year. And yet they prayed for me every day, and they invited me every week. And so finally, my junior year of high school, I said, surrender, I'll go back. It'll get you off my back, I'll go back. And, and I go into the youth group that night, and something was different. And the people didn't look weird to me anymore. I looked around, and I thought, these are cool people, they love each other. The songs didn't seem weird anymore. It seemed like, oh, of course, they love Jesus. They're singing to him. And then the pastor comes up and preaches the gospel for the first time ever. I thought, oh. And I gave my heart to Christ, not, not because there was a persuasive, persuasive evangelist arguing with me for a year, but just, just as they prayed and as they asked, God softened my heart so that I got to the point that the fruit was ripe and God was ready to harvest it. And the whole reason that my life changed is that someone came to me and said, come and see. Let's pray. Father, I admit that I don't consider myself an evangelist. I start sweating at the thought of bringing up something so personal and uncomfortable and life-changing as the gospel, even though I know it's an amazing thing to do. And yet I find freedom in this passage, knowing that you don't call us to have all the answers, to change anyone's life. You just call us to come and tug on the fruit and see what you do. I pray that you would teach me and that you would teach all of us to be faithful in this. That in every conversation we enter into this week, we would be looking for opportunities to ask questions that might indicate how ready people are. And that you would give us the guts when someone seems like they're ready to invite them to come and see, invite them to hear the gospel, invite them for whatever it is that you might have for us to invite them into. Pray for anyone here today who stands skeptical still, who's pushing back from the gospel, isn't ready to step in, that you would soften their hearts. Maybe that you would help them to see the first part of this passage, that when you call us to follow you, you don't make it hard. You take us as we are. You forgive us our sins. You do all the work. That Jesus' death on the cross paid for our sins. His resurrection from the grave gives us new life. And, and all we have to do is ask, and you give us eternal life. Pray that there would be men and women today who ask and, and receive the gift of life that, that you have for those who desire to follow you. Help us to go out and see you transform the world through us in this miraculous way as we simply bring your gospel and those questions around. You tell us in 2 Corinthians that the reason we carry the treasure of the gospel in these broken human bodies is to show that the power is from you, not from us. Let us find freedom there and let us tug the fruit and see who might be ready to receive the greatest gift they've ever received. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear additional messages or you're interested in finding out more about Neighborhood Church, please visit our website at threecrosses.org. That's the number three, crosses.org.